Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from the Horsham Church of Christ. For more information, please visit our website at www.horsham.org.au. If you have your Bibles there, open up your Bible or the Version Bible app. Uh, we'll be continuing our series in the pastoral epistles, Paul's letter to his spirits, letters to his spiritual sons, Timothy and Titus, as we talk about what it is to build the church as we disciple generations. So if you want to open up to 1 Timothy and we'll kick off there. Excellent. 1 Timothy Chapter 1, verse 3 and following. As I urged you, Paul writes to Timothy, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. Some uh, translations might say gossip or idle chatter. They want to be teachers of the law. They want to have the place and the prominence, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. So we're continuing to look at the two letters that we have from Paul to Timothy, and the one letter to Titus, probably won't touch on Titus today, but Paul writing to two spiritual sons that he has, um, and we're jumping all over the place rather than working through them sequentially, uh, picking out uh, various topics that Paul addresses as he writes to his sons in the faith. Uh, quite a few years ago, <laughs> I'm having a conversation in my head right now because I thought it was okay to share a story, and I've just had advice that uh, it's not okay to share the story. So I'm trying to think what I do now. So I'll try and protect the innocent. My wife, she's not the innocent, well, she is the innocent one in this one. It's the kids. It's one of the kids I'm protecting. So we'll see how we go. <laughs> I'll tell half of it. Sure. This is why I should just sit out the back until I preach, because there's just so much that happens in my head. It's not, I won't do that. That's horrible. Years ago, when uh, all of our children, one, particularly one per certain child, was a lot younger than they are now. And uh, all of our children are exuberant and enthusiastic and energetic and any other word that suggests never sitting still. And so, us in our wisdom, and particularly in Narelle, she was like, okay, I need, I need to do something. So I think there was one in a pram, one child in a pram, and then there was one that was just walking. She's like, I need to do something to kind of figure this out so we can go and do the groceries. And so she's like, I know what I'll do. We'll get one of those, um, I don't know if you can still get them, and this will sound horrible, like it's a harness backpack. You know what I'm talking about? There's grandparents laughing over here. You know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? So it was like, it was cute. It was a backpack that looked like a doggy's face. No. And the dog had a lead, which was attached to the backpack, and then Narelle would hold on to this lead. So you've got this image, child with a backpack, looks like a puppy's face, and then a lead, which sounds terrible now I talk about it and say it out loud. So Nero was like, this would be fantastic. And we thought this would appeal to the child because, you know, it's a cute backpack, they'll wear it, they'll be fine, it'll be exciting. And so Nero goes off to do the groceries, goes into Coles, 
and barely three steps into Coles, said child with said backpack and harness and lead on, gets down on all fours <laughs> in the Coles supermarket and starts barking like a dog. <laughs> and to make it worse, then starts doing laps around Narelle. <laughs> and ties her up with the lead. Oh, gracious. <laughs> that story's really hard to tell when I can't use names. You'll probably be able to figure it out, but I'm not going to tell you. And you're like, Jared, what does that have to do with the gospel and Paul's letters to Timothy? Listen, that child remains my child no matter what they go through or what they experience. In that moment, they might feel like a dog. And the facts might suggest we want to treat them like a dog. Nothing could be further from the truth. We just wanted them to stay right next to their mama. The truth of the matter is... That person was and is and forever will be our child. Nothing can change it. No, no matter the circumstances, no matter what we go through as parents, no matter what our children go through, no matter what we might put our children go through as parents, as we try and figure out how to do that, they are still our children. Nothing will change that, ever. They could come to us. And I hope and pray it will never happen and say, I hate you, I never want to see you again. And they would still be our children. Paul writes to his spiritual sons, his sons in the faith, sons who he has left behind in communities that he helped establish. So Paul went after his uh, miraculous conversion experience, which I'll talk about, a bit more about later on, and he would go into an area like Ephesus, like Macedonia, like uh, the area with the Thessalonians, numerous areas, plant a church, cop the flack for the work that he was doing, and then have other people that he had raised up in the faith and say, right, you lead it. And so this is what he does with Timothy and with Titus. And numerous times, not only in his letters to Timothy and to Titus, but numerous times throughout the rest of his epistles that he writes, the letters that he writes to the various church communities, he reinforces to them that they must not swerve from the truth set before them through faith and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And particularly with Tim and Titus, he says to them, there are many coming into your community. There are lots of people coming and trying to tell you something different from what has been sown into you, from the truth that has been established through faith in Jesus Christ, and you must not waver from it. And what we face in the world today is that this seems to be growing in prevalence. That more and more people are guided by their facts, and not, even, not their facts, but their feelings. And say, well, because I feel it, it must be true. And this mindset is, I would say, beyond creeping into the church. It is starting to saturate the church worldwide. Probably some areas of the church more than others probably more Western churches than churches elsewhere in the world. And so a lot of people, a lot of prominent Christians, a lot of Christian leaders are now, well, because this is what I feel, this must be true. 
And so we're getting waylaid from the truth set before us and being guided by what we think and feel rather than holding on to the truth of the gospel. Because at one point we had some experience where somebody said, well, you kind of look like a dog. Now we're crawling around on all fours barking and saying, well, I must be a dog. But it's even worse than that because we're our entire, for some people their entire identity is being shaped not by the truth set before them in God's word, not by the truth that has been instilled in them by parents and grandparents in the faith, but because of their experience in the world. And it is messed up. It's messed up. And so Paul writes, and he says, Avoid people that teach false doctrines and devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. People that promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. It wasn't necessarily the pagans, it wasn't necessarily people outside the church that were spreading these lies, but it was actually people that were, maybe had been a part of the church, or religious leaders of the day, Jewish people who disagreed with the advancing of the church in that time. And so Paul says, you have to stay strong against these lies that people are looking to promote. And you have to hold to the truth, hold steady to the truth that I have given to you, and that has been given to you through uh, the laying on of hands, as we've looked at previously, through your parents and through your grandparents, particularly with Timothy, that was instilled in him by his, um, his family and the generations that went before him. Let's look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 now, uh, verse 14, as we go a bit deeper in this. I don't know about you, but if I, in order to remember something, I think it's just human nature, I need, if I'm going to remember something, I need to have it constantly before me. If, it's, if you do something once, and you have to do it again, maybe a month or so later, chances are you're going to forget it. If we're going to hold to something, and remember something, and take it on board as true, then we actually need to have it before us on an ongoing basis. And Paul writes to his son, Timothy, it says, Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It's of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Do your be- Can you hear Paul's language like the, um, the energy and the emphasis that he puts on actually working towards um, how he presents himself before the Lord? Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hermanius and Philetus who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place. So here Paul is addressing a particular lie that a couple of leaders are trying to um, spread amongst the church. They say the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who who, who are his and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away 
from wickedness. Listen, do you know how to know what is true? It's in the Bible. If you hear something from me and it doesn't line up with God's word, it's not I'm right and the Bible's wrong. I'm wrong. And you, as the body of Christ, as my brother or sister, actually have not just the right, but the responsibility to correct me. And I have the responsibility and the right to correct you if I think you're actually out of line with Scripture. But so many are actually going, well, like it was written a couple of thousand years ago, if not longer than that, so does it still apply? I mean, it's kind of outdated and, you know, like it was a different context and a different time and a different season. And Well, we know more than they know than they knew then, so maybe all of it doesn't apply like it did then. And no doubt, some of it we need to apply context, but we actually start by applying context. And this is what we're trying to do all through, this is what we're trying to do every time we preach, is to say, okay, who's the original author? In this case, it's Paul. Who's he writing to? Timothy and Titus. What's the situation that they're in? Okay, it's not long after Jesus has ascended into heaven and Paul is helping Tim and Titus lead young communities of faith, facing some very harsh lies that are leading people astray. That's what we know about the context. And then we go, okay, so now knowing what that meant for them, now knowing who it was written to, what does it mean for us, the ones who it was written for? Because all scripture, as we'll look at later, is God-breathed, God-inspired. Useful for teaching and for rebuke. And so we need to hold to the truths that we have in Scripture and line things up with what we find in Scripture and we do this in community rather than just me off on my own little island reading the Bible for myself, coming up with, well, what does this mean to me? What makes me feel good? Man, if the world keeps doing what feels good, we are ruined. We can't just do what, man, if feels good, like it feels good to eat chocolate. That is not good for me all the time. It feels good to sleep in. That's not getting anything productive done. It doesn't always feel good to come to church. <gasps> the pastor said it's not always good to come to church. I said it doesn't always feel good. Don't lie. I know some of us have felt the same way. Um, um, it's, it's good to come to church, don't get me wrong. If I'm driven by my feelings, I'm lazy, inconsiderate, selfish, binging Netflix, eating food I shouldn't, wasting time. I don't know what you said, Rick, and we'll leave it. Coffee drink, look. <laughs> I try and leave coffee out of messages often. But now that you've brought it up, coffee is a gift from the Lord. I do good ministry over coffee. I'm ready for one right now. Um, thanks for the distraction. But even in that, like if I drink less coffee than I used to, why? Because the Lord had a word with me about it. 
and said, you're drinking too much coffee. And I'm not going to tell you how much coffee I was drinking then. There's a lot more than what I was drinking now. Instant coffee is just bad for you. The end. Um, here we go. We'll get back to the Bible. This will fix it. Help me, Jesus. Verse 22. Timothy 2, verse 22. Are you there? Holy Spirit, come. Flee the evil desires of youth and coffee addiction and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant, remember this is Paul writing to Timothy, Timothy is the leader of this church through the laying on of hands of the elders and Paul and they're prophesying over him they have um, put him in place as the leader so we read this as a community but remember this is quite an individual letter in some ways don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but must be kind to everyone able to teach and not resentful I do not always feel like being kind to everyone. But the word of the Lord says, be kind to everyone. Guess what? The truth trumps my feelings. And I must, I don't always feel like being teachable. I try to be. I try to be open when people come to me and say, dude, you missed the mark. Dude, that hurt me. Jared, not everybody calls me dude. Sorry, I'm just... Jared, that offended me, that hurt me when you said that or you did that or you didn't do that. And my feelings say run and hide. But Jesus, Holy Spirit within me says stay here, stay connected and actually receive the truth that this person wants to give you. And then I actually grow and I'm transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ because I actually stay humble and teachable and not resentful at the person who would come and bring me correction. And this is the encouragement that Paul brings to Timothy. Opponents, verse 25, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them, into a knowledge, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Ooh, this is meaty. Opponents, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading them to a knowledge of the truth. How does Paul know this? Because this was his experience. Uh, Romans uh, chapter 2, it will be up on the screen. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Here's what I want to highlight. Verse 4, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? His kindness is what leads us to repentance. Not opposition, not idle chatter, not arguments over who's right and who's wrong the kindness of God leads to repentance 
This was Paul's, Saul's experience on the road to Damascus. That Jesus appeared to him in a blinding light and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Jesus didn't condemn him and say, I will smite you, you little twerp. But Paul, Saul, actually had an experience and encounter of the kindness of God through Jesus Christ that led him to repentance, to become one of the greatest apostles and Bible teachers the world has ever seen. I wonder how many people have actually not stepped into their God-given gifts and callings because they've been opposed or rebuked in an ungodly fashion or because people have walked away from, from, a, biblically, from a biblical rebuke and actually rather than staying connected, they've gone, well, it's all too hard, I'm out. Somebody hurt my feelings, so I'm leaving and never coming back. Rather than actually staying connected to the truth, and say, all right, what is God actually wanting to say to me? What does God's word say to me? And what is the truth that I need to rem- remember in my life? The truth that I need to hold, this, hold on to. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach and not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. This is a big deal. We live in a, in a world where if you disagree in the public sphere, you will be roasted for it. There is now um, a mindset or a movement, if you like, called cancel culture. Whereas if you go against the popular opinion, if you disagree with the mainstream... If you have an opinion different to what the most prominent people have, you will get cancelled. Your social media accounts will be removed. Some of you will be like, whatever, I don't care. But if that's the world that you live in, that matters a big deal. And it happens to Christians and non-Christians alike, basically because they are disagreeing with the popular narrative that is spread across mainstream media and social media. And we see Christians... This is where it matters to me. Christians backing down from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and no longer standing on faith because of fear of being cancelled, because of fear of rebuke from the world around them. Because the outside world might have a negative opinion about somebody that actually stands on the gospel and says, actually, this is what I believe. I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. I believe that life starts at conception. And so you might be sitting here and disagree with what I've just said, but these are the truths that I hold on to and I'll have a biblical reasoning behind what I believe. And many people, many prominent people, will stand on that truth and receive public backlash for it. And some people will walk away from faith because of that backlash and say, it's all too hard, I don't feel like standing up to it any longer. I don't always like uh, surveys and statistics, probably because I used to work in statistics and know that there's always more to them than meets the eye. But there's a couple of surveys that I think are, that apply to this and will... Um, I hope they encourage us to actually stay true to God's Word. 
I'll start with the good one. The Centre for Bible Engagement compiled research after surveying over 400,000 people between the ages of 8 and 80 from 24 countries and from all walks of life, and they discovered something quite astounding. It's called the power of four effect. Has anybody heard about this? The biblical power of four effect. Cool. <coughs> the life of someone who engages scripture, and I think it's important they use the word engage, not just read, but engages scripture four or more times a week. Four or more times. That's not a, that's not a lot, really looks radically different from the life of someone who does not. So the survey said, if you read the Bible once a week, there's not much difference between that person and a non-believer. If you read the Bible twice a week, not much difference. Three times a week, not much difference. Four times a week, there is a massive shift. There is a measurable difference between somebody who engages Scripture four or more times per week than somebody who does not engage with it or engages it less than that. Does it make life perfect? No. Was life perfect for anybody who wrote the Bible? No. Jesus promised persecution will come at you if you are one of my followers. And so it doesn't promise perfection, it promises a radical shift in our life. Someone who reads the Bible four or more times a week is 59% less likely to view pornography. 30% less likely to struggle with loneliness. 74% less likely to gamble. Get this, 407% more likely to memorise scripture. 228% more likely to share their faith with others. 231% more likely to disciple others. The more we engage with God's truth found in the Holy Scriptures, the more likely we are to share our faith, the more likely we are to memorize Scripture and commit it to memory and to heart, and the less likely we are to engage in behaviors and even emotions which are not healthy for us. Four times a week. Now, this, there's no, there is, this isn't, I'm share, not sharing this out of shame, to shame you, condemn you, judge you. This is an encouragement. Like on a practical level, if this was a sales pitch, I'd be like, all you've got to do is read it four times a week. Maybe that's like 40 minutes out of 168 hours in a week. That's not hard. You can even just put, pick a book you like. Don't start in Lamentations or Leviticus. Start in Mark. Mark's fast-paced. It's always immediately and suddenly. Four times a week. Here's the bad news. A study released earlier this year by the Cultural Research Centre of a 1,000 pastors in America. Well, I don't know how many pastors there are in America. There'd be tens of thousands. But they would consider this an, an ample sample group, okay? A 1,000 pastors found... Oh, I hate this. That 37% of Christian pastors in the United States have a biblical worldview, while the majority possess the hybrid syncretism worldview. What does syncretism mean? It means it's a blending, a mixing together of different religious and worldviews. Two thirds 
of pastors leading churches in America don't hold on to the Bible as the truth and God's word. They might add it in with other bits and pieces. Well, it's in there with a mix, but love me a bit of Hindu, throw in a dash of Oprah for popularity. I don't know. The study was based on 54 worldview-related questions and found that only 40% of the pastors had a biblical worldview regarding family and the value of life, 44% concerning issues related to God, creation and history, 43% in relation to personal faith practices, such as reading the Bible, praying, fasting, 43% when it comes to matters of sin, salvation and one's relationship with God, 40% pertaining to human character and human nature, and 40% when it comes to measures of lifestyle, personal behaviour and relationships. per week to see a radical difference in the kind of life that I lead in the kind of life that we as Christians lead that's not a super high bar is it yet there's a whole bunch of people leading our churches that do not agree with what they're reading in scripture the world is messed up and we are buying the lie that this doesn't matter as much as it once did. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 14. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed. I love that. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I think in some ways as a church, maybe not Horsham Church of Christ, I don't think so, I hope not, feel free to disagree with me, but as a church, the Western church, we have lowered the bar so low to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ that we just keep lowering it and lowering it. That all that we ask is that you show up to church once in a while and you be counted. It doesn't work. And it's not saying that by coming on a Sunday morning you fix everything. It's not even saying that by reading the Bible regularly you fix everything. But I'm saying as we spend time in God's Word, we don't actually just memorise Scripture, we actually get to know the author. And we're more and more likely, I need a more powerful word, but that's why I've got more and more likely to actually hear from the author and to be guided by him in our lives. And as we do that in community, rather than just me going off to my 
going off by myself and reading the word and figuring out what it means for myself, but we actually do it in community so that as we talk about it, we're actually shaped by others. And the beauty of church, the design of church, is that we don't actually lean on, well, how do we understand it as a community in 2022, but we have 2,000 years of church tradition that has been passed down from the likes of Paul and Timothy and Titus and Peter and Barnabas down from church generation to church generation all the way down to us that we have to lean on. And so that when we come to a difficult issue, such as marriage or family or abortion or prayer or fasting or whatever it might be that we face in the world today, we have, if you like, from a statistical standpoint, 2,000 years of data and tradition to pull on. Tradition in the good sense of the word, not stuff that we do just for the sake of, well, this is the way that we've always done it. But because the tradition of the church fathers was that they lent on the teaching and what was passed down to them from the eyewitnesses, the people that did life with Jesus. And so this is Paul's encouragement to Timothy. You know what was passed down from you, passed on to you, which is what I received. Who did I receive it from? I received it from those that did life with Jesus himself. And so this is why you hold on to it, Timothy. This is why you hold on to it, Titus. And this is what you're to encourage your church community in doing to not let go of these truths just because there's more idle chatter coming in, there's more false philosophies coming in, there's more false teachers coming in. And there's one verse in there, I'm not sure that I've used it today. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 verse 1 says, But mark this, there'll be terrible times in the last day. In the last days, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, Proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. This is not a new problem, ladies and gentlemen. This is as old as the gospel itself. That kind of gives me a bit of comfort. People have always been dumb. That's, that's terrible. Sorry. It's true. Have nothing to do with such people, Paul writes. They are the kind who... I don't think I've got this up. They're the kind that worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth people just coming in with their latest and greatest teachings and feelings and this feels good and that feels good and they were come, some of them were coming in and denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ and saying well it's already happened like the second coming and we're all alive in Christ as the, the second creation as, as the resurrection has finally taken place and that's why Paul writes to Timothy and John wrote in his letters these are the last days. We're in the last days. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. Because some people read these scriptures and go, well, you know, look at the world around us and say, man, it's getting really bad. It's getting really dark out in the world. It must be the last days. It's been the last days since Jesus went back up to heaven. All the biblical authors thought that. We've been doing the last days for 2,000 years. That's why when people talk about when Jesus is going to return and they know when he's going to return, I'm like, you don't know squat. He's been coming back for 2,000 years. 
And this is why we have to hold to the truth because people have their opinions and will be tossed about and swayed about and our minds will be changed and depends what we feel like and who offends us or who says the right thing or the wrong thing rather than actually going, God, your word is timeless. God, I'm going to stay connected in community. God, I'm going to come under your teaching of your holy word. God, I'm going to get alone with you and your scripture to engage with you, Lord. Not just read it as a book. Satan knew the scripture off by heart and tempted Jesus with it. But Jesus knew the right word for the right occasion because he engaged with the word, committed it to heart, committed it to memory. There's lots of lies and there is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and it's this that we stand on in faith. Let's stand together. That was a crash landing, but that's okay. Four times per week, ladies and gentlemen. Leave a Bible in the toilet, you'll tick that off in no time. It's terrible, isn't it? Better than Reader's Digest. So, Father, we dedicate ourselves to being uh, not only readers of your word, but people who pursue you in passionate relationship, to know you. That we would be like a city on a hill, that we wouldn't be hidden, that we would shine your light before all men. That the world would look and see who you are and what you're like. The world would be drawn to you because we live out of the truth that we know. That you are good and it's your kindness that leads to repentance repentance and that Jesus is the same yesterday today and forever we thank you for your truth and we dedicate ourselves Lord as the Horsham Church of Christ to going deeper in your word to learning it to committing it to heart and mind and living it out every day of our lives as we sing this closing so I want to invite you if you need a miracle in your body if, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus and you're here today and you're like, whoa, something's stirring within me that says I have to know more, I have to take the next step of giving my life, completely surrendering to Jesus. And just during this last song we're going to sing, I want to invite you, come down the front, myself or somebody else will just come and stand with you after, probably after the song's finished and we'll just spend some time in prayer with you. Um, but don't let this moment go. Don't let this day, another day go past without actually saying, yes, I'm all in as a follower of Jesus.